This is Geeks Unleashed, Late to the Party, Episode 7. And welcome to Late to the Party, Episode 7. This is the Geeks Unleashed Monthly Book Club podcast, where in addition to our weekly podcast, we work through what are are considered some of the most essential graphic novels of all time. This month's novel is They Called Us Enemy by George Takei, Justin Isinger, and Steve Scott. And the art is by Harmony Becker. I'm Mark. And I'm Jasmine. And we are also joined this month uh, by our guest host, Deborah Taylor. Deborah is a returning guest. Uh, she graciously uh, appeared on episode six, where we covered March Volume One by the late Congressman John Lewis. Hi, Deborah. Well, it's great to be back, and it's great to talk about another essential um, young adult graphic novel. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, also, just a reminder, Deborah recently uh, retired um, after decades as a librarian and is the recipient of the Coretta Scott King Virginia Hamilton Practitioner Award for a lifetime achievement and from the American Library Association. So really like, please uh, have you back again. And yeah. it was just really good. Like, like, I really enjoyed our March Volume 1 discussion. So I'm looking forward to more of the same. Yeah, um, so. Yeah. Uh, this month, we're going to be reviewing, as Jasmine said earlier, They Called Us Enemy, which um, obviously is written by George Takai, J- Justin Isinger, and Stephen Scott, illustrated by Harmony Becker, and was originally published on the 16th of July, 2019. And just a little bit of backstory. This book is an account of Takai's four years living in Japanese internment camps within the United States. His father was born in Japan, but his mother was born in California. However, she was educated in Japan because her father did not want her to go to the segregated American school system. Takei and his two siblings were also born in Los Angeles, therefore making them American citizens. Shortly after the birth of his baby sister, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, which forced America's hand and uh, America joined World War II. On December 7th, 1941, the same day as the bombing, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared that every adult of Japanese descent in the U.S. was now classified as an alien enemy. 74 days after that, FDR signed Executive Order 9066 into law. That order allowed the Secretary of War to designate specific areas within the U.S. as militarized zones, uh, effectively beginning the relocation of approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans to 10 different camps, that were mostly in the Western US, but they did stretch as far as East Arkansas near the Mississippi border. So in case you didn't know who George K is, he was born on April 20th, 1937, and is most well known for being an American actor, author, and activist. He's especially well known for his role as Hikaru Sulu on the USS Enterprise on the television series, Star Trek, and all of its six feature films as well as playing the same role on one episode of Star Trek Voyager. He also, in my opinion, my favourite role that I saw him on uh, is Heroes TV show, where he played Hero's father, uh, Kato Nakamura. And he is also uh, an American politician, as well as an uh, activist uh, for LGBT rights, and has won many awards that... I'm sure you can all look up, but he he comes across, in my opinion, as well as very likable. So, yeah, definitely, he he seems like a very affable guy. Um, Mm -hmm. Jumping just straight into this book, 
the first thing that really caught my attention with they call this enemy is the fact that this is told from his perspective when he's a child um, mm-hmm. instead of him retelling the story as an adult telling us as an adult how he felt as a child and and I think it's it's such an interesting perspective um, because a lot of the stuff that we've read for our book clubs especially they don't really come from that uh, when we read March there was a part at the beginning where we kind of get to see John Lewis's life when he is a child growing up on the farms and uh, that kind of thing but a lot for the most part a lot of it is kind of once he hits his political stride uh, that's that's kind of where the books take off for March and in this this book I just found it so fascinating to see this kind of very large sort of atrocity and just unjust thing happening but through the eyes of a child who didn't understand the gravity of what was happening um and so my first question to y'all is just kind of what kind of impact did you think it had reading this story uh from the point of view of a child i think for me and the it's very difficult to do that by the way it's very difficult to sustain um, the voice of a child when you're an adult writer, um, especially when you're writing a memoir, because the, the, there's so much of a, I call it the wonder years over voice. There's so much temptation to kind of do that looking back um, tone in, in the writing. And he avoids that consistently. He does kind of step out of the voice a little bit because he does, indicate there, there were things that he as a child thought were adventurous, mm-hmm. but because he didn't know any better, but he still manages to keep that child's perspective, even as he's explaining that he didn't, there were things going on that he didn't understand, that he, that he perceived in a way that were not um, the way they really were. So I, I thought that was extremely, he did it in an extremely skillful way, mm-hmm. um, something that is, that requires you to be very careful that you don't lose that voice um, as, you're, as you're telling that story. I was going to say, when I, when I read this, I constantly thought, I kept sort of in my mind, I kept flicking between sort of Mouse and March a little bit. Um, and so with Mark, with Mouse, obviously we had it where the child kept going to interview his father about what happened. Um, and also to, he spent a lot of time in the graphic novel going, flicking back between the present and the past because the author was like really inserting his character into the book, especially part two, where it was almost all about the effects of how well March, uh, sorry, how well Mouse had done and, and stuff like that. And I wasn't, you know, I think we, we I remember me and Jasmine discussing this um, on the, on that episode about how it wasn't, I don't know, it was almost a little bit self-gratifying, the constant mm-hmm. insertion of him, his own life and how it affected him. And I remember even like, there's a conversation that he had between him and his wife and he even made reference about you know if this wasn't a book I wouldn't win the conversation and stuff like this and um so what I liked with this book was actually that we didn't spend I mean there was there was I think there's one or two bits Mm -hmm. where him and his father were sitting down but generally this did stick to a fairly fairly linear I know it did occasionally jump to the future but it was fairly linear from start to finish and it was more towards uh, the end did we sort of jump around a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I liked the fact that he managed to keep keep us, I guess, in the action, so to speak, um, seeing it from his point of view and 
and when things did happen that were from an adult's point of view, he narrated it saying, you know, these are things I didn't really know about at the time. Yeah. But like, mm -hmm. but then we didn't, we didn't have to waste two or three pages of him showing up at his dad's house and eating Sunday lunch and having a, mm -hmm. oh, you know, like, like you did in Mouse quite a lot of the time. Yeah. And, and I, I, I did find in Mouse, I know I'm comparing them a little bit, but I did find in Mouse that you'd, you'd waste quite a lot of time jumping around and I really did like the fact that we weren't jumping around you know yeah. it's almost the opposite of a flashback it was like a flash right. forward in mouse mm -hmm. like and um and but actually this was something that I have to admire was really well thought out that the taking away that jumping around and keeping it keeping you in the action but, but in terms of the um children's point of view I actually thought it was quite sweet quite a lot of the time and they did break it down sometimes in like you had half a page with the mum sitting on the train worrying like or you know and stuff like that and, and then the kids like you say thinking it's an adventure so it was good that he could see obviously at the time he couldn't see that point of view but for them to you know sort of comment on that and it's, and it's that's very true of a lot, a lot of things I've got you know a seven-year-old and 11-year-old and that you know my seven-year-old today lost her tooth it's like the best thing in the world because she's going to get some <laughs> money 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 in the morning and like you know but it's like things like that, that those are the important things to children so having mm -hmm. some kind of adventure and then and then even just telling them it's an adventure yeah they they take that they take that for granted because i think and there's lots of comments about how he, he you know sort of looked up to his father and his father always seemed like a man who was in charge and stuff like that mm -hmm. i don't know i just i i did think it was really well done about actually keeping it keeping it you in in the action and keeping it from his point of view from the child's point of view but um and then and not and like again not wasting time having to sort of go around and find that information for the book so yeah i i appreciate it that he didn't sort of tell the story with an omniscient eye like like he mm -hmm. sticks specifically to his experience he mm. he doesn't talk about how he thinks his father felt or how he thinks his mother felt like he talks about what he could see on his parents faces Mm -hmm. um but what i think I, I find kind of interesting is when when you look at the art in the book you can see as the reader you can see the worry on his parents faces yet yeah. on that train when they're going to arkansas and his dad is like he's like where are we going and his dad's like oh we're, we're going on vacation and his <laughs> eyes just completely light up and he looks so excited and he inserts something about how he had just this general thought like what is wrong with everybody on this train? My dad just said, we're going on vacation. Why am I the only person on this train that's excited to be on vacation? Um, oh, yeah, and you, made, you made a comment about how, um, like, um, maybe this is how everybody goes on holiday with armed guards and people crying. Yeah, so like he, he literally just thought yeah. that that was, that was how it was supposed to be. But the, <laughs> but the thing that I guess it kind of, again, this, this, I couldn't put this book down. So once I opened this book, I finished it in, in one sitting. I, I mean, I blew right through the book, but it struck me the contrast in seeing the terror and the uncertainty on his parents' faces in, in the comic versus his super excited, happy to be here face. And it's just kind of one of those things where it really kind of plays with your emotions as the reader, because it's like, I kind of have an idea of where you're going and you don't. And oh man, this just sucks because you're you're about to be sorely disappointed. Uh, but it, that moment kind of never happened. Um, at least not while he was still, you know, very young. Because he was all under the age of 10 when all of this happened. The entire time that they were in the internment camps, he was under 10. Um, so I just, I, I loved that part of the book so much where the, the artist was able to capture the adult emotion without 
taking away from the child's voice that's telling the actual story. And I think he he deliberately puts in aspects of family life mm-hmm. that show that there was this attempt to have some degree of normalcy in the most outrageous of, 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 uh, of experiences. He's still a big brother. Um, he's still interacting with other children. He's, he, they're still being uh, playing tricks on um, on that on him. <laughs> and, um, so I mean, there's certain aspects that of childhood that he tells as a part of the story, which keep that idea of looking at it through the child's perspective, um, even in not just in terms of of how he tells the story, but what he chooses to tell the things that would be important to a child, which is taking care of your little brother, um, you know, kids who are messing with you and that kind of thing. So he really does does the work to keep you focused on this experience through the eyes of a child. The, the part where he is interacting with those older kids and they're like, yes. hey, listen, if you go yell this stuff at the guards, they're going to give right. you exactly what you're they're asking for. They're going to give you stuff, bubble so, gum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've, I've been studying Japanese. And so when I got to that part and I'm reading it, and in, as I'm reading it, because the phrase that the older boys tell him is Sakana, Sakana Beach. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, you say that fast enough and it sounds like son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but when I read it the first time, I was like, fish beach. What, what kind of magic <laughs> word is fish beach? Cause I'm now I'm translating from Japanese to my head as I'm reading it. And I was like, that's a, that's a weird phrase. I've never heard that phrase before. And then like, I started to repeat it myself faster and as I started to repeat it faster I was like oh I get it and it's almost like I I got it just as I was reading up to the point where he finally like his dad explained it to him what it what that kind of meant and I thought that was kind of funny I was like if I hadn't been studying Japanese I don't know that I would have gone that deep into it but I was really trying to figure out in my head like what kind of magic phrase is fish beach what does that mean yeah yeah yeah. I did think that was quite good actually that even again it was a bit like we didn't have to waste time going to find out what that meant he just literally put a one-liner at the bottom say mm-hmm. i later on found out what that meant and explained what <laughs> right. it meant and um I, d- I like the fact that with this book it, it didn't waste time it kept you in the moment i, I yeah. know i said that a minute ago but yeah um i was gonna say like there's a couple of things that were bothering me about this book and um firstly that it was i feel like probably naive to say oh, how much of this book i didn't pretty much none of this book I knew about um but I didn't realize all this stuff happened and um you know there's a there's a uh, I think was it there's a bit where as a teenager uh Takai um is going he basically can't find any mention in any history books about this um so I think you said before we started recording that people don't necessarily want to hear about all the bad things we've done but I can imagine the American government, when they're going through the syllabus for your education program in, in America, probably they're probably not overly keen on having books like this made. I don't know. I'm just that's an assumption, but um, it, that's but, a very yeah. true assumption. They actually just passed legislation in quite a few states to not teach the uh, sort of implications of a project called the 1619 Project, which talks about slavery and how basically the entire foundation of this country and its economic system was built on the backs of slavery. Um, so it has already been banned, not that anybody was trying to teach it in schools yet, but it has already been banned from several state mm-hmm. curricula. So that is something that definitely happens where the governments go in and they oversee this kind of thing and decide what is worth teaching and what isn't. 
And it's very, it's very important to know which states do it because Texas is doing it. Yep. And Texas, because it's such a huge state mm-hmm. and they spend so much of their money, spend, they buy so many textbooks that publishers will do what Texas wants, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if no other states want that because they know Texas is going to um, purchase this large number of textbooks. Mm -hmm. So they have Mm -hmm. an outsized influence on what gets taught. So if they decide they don't want that they don't want to teach the fact that some aspects of something were built on slavery or or something to do with with how the Mexican-American war was fought, they will, they can actually keep it out. Mm -hmm. So, but I think over the last few years, there's been a lot more attention. And so interesting, you know, with all of the discussion about anti-Asian um, hate that's been going on lately, there have been, there has been more attention paid to the role and, and the, the experiences of Asian Americans in this country, including um, the experience with the Japanese internment camps. And, um, you know, there have been documentaries and there are more young adult books that have come out recently about the experiences, not graphic, not necessarily graphic novels, but regular novels mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. teens, young people um, who were teenagers in the camps. So we're starting to see a little bit more attention being paid to it because people are going to tell their stories. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to, it, it might be you know, difficult, it might, they may have to go through a lot, but just the same way that he was insistent on getting the story out there. I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. Um, Once people start to, you know, start telling their experiences, no matter how hard people try. So, but I think it does make it harder for other people, for the, for people who, or makes it easier for people who want to deny it to, turn away from it. If people are constantly saying, we don't need to hear that, we don't need to hear that. But I think people are gonna still keep trying to tell, even if they're telling it to each other, mm-hmm. they're going to tell that story. So I think it's you know, unfortunate that, you know, so many people don't know. Don't yeah, know. I, I wasn't aware of it like over here. And there's obviously not enough history books that cover that part of them part of mm-hmm. or history you know not just american history but history but like i just couldn't believe that this happened just like the ability just because that you know what they say something like um the the absence of of proof or something like that was enough right to basically right. lock up all of these japanese people it was just when i was reading it i was like this is insane i literally couldn't believe it for the whole of world war ii they were putting camps and kind of i think moves me on to the next thing i was really bothered about was like that the, the, his whole family were living in a house now i can't remember exactly but i'm pretty sure they said they bought it um and then after the war that they had to essentially start again and how many families um maybe lost property or land and stuff like that and and then obviously after the war had to literally start from scratch, you know, building yes. up, you know, it takes time to build up deposits and jobs and companies. And they had all that taken away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the government and... froze their bank accounts. Well, so yeah, yeah. They had so, no liquid capital whatsoever. So it's completely starting to get, you can imagine some of them probably were even homeless afterwards. Um, yes. Yes. 
So what, what, I was, what I was thinking was, like, there were several thoughts I had over this. It was really bothering me. They didn't, in the book, show them going to their old house, which I would love to have seen. Like, did someone just take take their house, which I assume they did. Somebody probably mm-hmm. just repossessed their house or something like that, which which is terrible. They should have been given their house back, to be honest. And um, But I started, I, my thoughts started to go, like, well, okay, so that was a property in um, uh, on the West Coast, which is normally around, uh, was it in Los Angeles? Uh, most property in Los Angeles is goes for a fair fair amount of money now in like mm-hmm. you know, a million plus normally. So what you know? So think about these families that had their properties taken from them, that you know, and these plots of land that could be worth millions and millions of pounds. Uh, like you know, some probably some white people were probably taken over, and and then it was in 1988 when they apologised that was it. President Reagan gave them all the, mm-hmm. all the survivors a check for 20 grand. I was like. I was like, they fucking kidding? I was like, that's such an insult. <laughs> like, you know, there's probably there's some families that have taken over their property because uh, it was only a 40 years gap. So some of those families who took over their property and then were still probably alive. And, you know, they could be sitting in, a, you know, in a plot of land that's worth a million or two. And then the survivors are getting a check for 20 grand each. And I was like, that's, I don't know, it's just really like, that's just nuts to me. Like, they should have been given whatever the equivalent is of what they lost, mm-hmm. like, at, at that current market value. Like, you know, but so that's how the, the gap in, in generational wealth continues right. to happen. Continues. And yeah. It's, yeah. it's because of things like this. Like, you were on the up and up. They owned a dry cleaning business before right. they yeah. were put into these camps. So not only were they homeowners, but they also were business owners. So they were literally living the the American dream that everybody props up on this giant pedestal, right? Um, and then all of that is taken away. You lose your business, you lose your home, you lose the money in your bank accounts. And then basically the whole the whole issue with what happened at the end and the what they call the Renunciation Act. Now, again, at the at the beginning in the summary, I, I said that George's mom was born here. She was born in California, making her an American citizen. But while she was in the internment camps, what, what the government came in and did toward the end of the war, they were like, hey, look, here's the deal. If you were born here and you renounced your citizenship, then, you know, it's no big deal. We'll just send you back to Japan. Right. But they were worried about it because of exactly what you said, Mark, like, They've been away from their homes for four years. Now the whole country is turned against them because they think that all of these people are somehow enemies of the state. Mm. And, and basically the government is, is giving you two options. One option, you leave this camp and then screw you, you're on your own. Or you basically say you don't want to be an American citizen anymore and then we'll ship you back to Japan. And it's kind of like, the hell, what, what kind of choices are those? Like how, how can you feasibly think that those are valid two completely valid outcomes to offer people that you literally snatched off the street and threw into these camps. What I found fascinating was the, they, while they were snatching all of them and sending them to camps, they would not let the Japanese food workers stop working. Oh no, because somebody's <laughs> got to feed everybody they else. Got a supply. So you weren't good enough to have your dry cleaning business continue, but but and you were you know we're we're worried about you being an enemy. But here are people who are who are in the food chain who are responsible for ha- making sure that there's food for for people in this country, and we are insisting that they have to keep working. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know they're going to be penalized if they stop working. So it just it just shows that there was nothing in this except racism. Yeah, exactly. There was nothing in this except 
you know, I mean, just the whole idea, like you said, the lack of proof. I had to read that part passage so many times to get it. You know, the fact that no, you see no evidence of sabotage and you see no evidence of disloyalty. Aha, but there, there must, that's why we're saying they're disloyal because we don't see any evidence that they're disloyal. That is well, insanity. Yeah, I, think that's it, I, think, I guess what they're trying to say is because there's no proof that, they, that they're innocent, so therefore right. they must be an enemy. And they're inscrutable. Right. So we're, we're dealing with all of the stereotypes as well as everything else because we know that they're inscrutable, so they're, they must be hiding their true nature and the true things that they're... They must be doing stuff that we just can't fit. We just can't ferret out. So oh. because we can't find it, we're going to assume that that's really happening. And I, I thought it was crazy that they had conversations like in um, so toward the middle of the book when he's doing like uh, flashbacks to actual news events. You've got senators and Supreme Court justices mm-hmm. that are sitting here saying these people are never going to assimilate. It right. doesn't matter how long right. they've been here. They're always going to be Japanese. And therefore, they're always going to put the Japanese empire ahead of us. And it's like. You're talking about people that were born here, people that yes. were born here. They're American citizens. And most of the people that you put into these camps have never even been to Japan. I mean, you're, but then, but you're, I was to say, but then later on, they, they actually realized they had to backtrack that when they needed more soldiers. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, so so they, they became good enough when they were like, oh, crap, we're running out of bodies. Oh, yeah. Whenever line. whenever they need someone to die for them, they they, yeah. they find plenty of people. Oh, yeah. And, like, and the whole idea that you could be in a camp and have a family member who is in the who is fighting the Japanese, who is who is fighting for the country, and you are you could have other family members that are in the camp. And in some instances, they didn't talk about it in, in the, this book. In some instances, people saw that as a way to prove their loyalty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's they, like they that wanted, impression. Yeah, yeah, they wanted to be, which is something that marginalized people have always done in this country. Mm-hmm. They have always tried to prove that to that we were worthy to be here. They were worthy to be here. That they so they would always try to do more. And they fought in every whatever the war was. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, they were going to uh, they could have family members locked up for for their ethnicity, but they would still try to prove that they right. were worthy. You know, and I think it, uh, as we got to that part, when they started talking about the Issei and the Nisei, which is the first generation and the second generation, generation. Japanese Americans, right. So the entire second generation, even though that was Takei's generation, obviously he was far too young to be conscripted into the military, but you have an entire second generation of Japanese soldiers, Japanese, I'm sorry, American soldiers that are of Japanese descent that had no benefits to being an American soldier. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, I thought that that part of the book to me was when, when it kind of gets into the breakdown of the whole 442nd regiment and that kind of thing. I thought it was fascinating that the way that Takei kind of explains it is you had people like his father where, you know, they filled out that form and they said, no, no. Well, then they became the no-nos because right. they, there was no reason for them to renounce a bond to Japan that they didn't have. And so they filled out the form honestly saying, well, no, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to do that because there's no connection between me and this country in the first place. Um, so you had the people that said no to those citizenship questions. Then you had the people who said yes, and were allowed to join the army and that kind of thing. Then you had the dissidents that were kind of like, I will join the army if you let me go back to my hometown 
walk into mm -hmm. a recruitment center and sign up just like every other white boy that signs up right. to go into the military service. I, then I will join your military. So you had the people who ended up going to a much worse and harsher camp um, when, when they said no. You have the people who said yes and then went were shipped over to Europe to fight in a war and then come back home with, still with no mm -hmm. benefits. And then you have the third set of people which were arrested and sent to prisons because they they said that yes we'll do it but we want to do it the same way that other american citizens do it since we are american citizens um and i just thought that that whole aspect of those three kind of different people and the way that takei describes all of them as all standing up for the american ideal in their own way as if he's saying like none of them are wrong like there is no right or wrong answer to right to do this but each one of these groups of people did what they thought was right. And each one of these groups of people, despite the country showing you how much it hated you, you still chose to believe in the system and to believe in the ideal, the American ideal. And, and the reason that you were so passionate about these things was because you, you know, despite, despite being mistreated, you thought that the system eventually is, is going to kind of work out. And that's that's a hell of a burden for anybody to carry, especially when you you've literally lost everything. And the part when they got to that first camp in Arkansas and they were like or the first camp in California and they were in horse stables. Yes. I didn't know that that and, had happened. Yes. And he, he he's a kid. So he thinks yeah. it's a great thing to sleep yeah. where the horses have slept. So, you same. know, but, you know, but the same token, you, you can imagine the horror because his mother, especially from his mother, who was such. She was trying to take such good care of her kids mm -hmm. and then to have, you know, to have no control over the kind of, and like she's asking, where are the beds? You know, where are we going to sleep? Mm -hmm. And so you just really see the day-to-day -day, um, humiliations yeah. that yeah. were part. It's one thing, just the whole idea, we've rounded up all of these people, but in, inside of that are day-to-day -day humiliations. Yeah. Um, I, thought, I, thought it, I thought it was interesting the mother like um, obviously she set the sewing machine with her yeah. which I thought was quite sweet uh, and she yeah. she basically throughout the book she you kept coming to the fact that she was desperate to look after her children and and mm -hmm. yeah there were so many things which she wanted to care, care for her family she didn't like the fact that she couldn't cook that that was taken away from her because mm -hmm. she saw that as caring for her children and um, and I think she seemed so pleased with herself that and even her even um her husband seemed pretty pleased that she'd start um not stolen because it was hers um had yeah. smuggled in that sewing machine i actually um, love um, that scene the whole thing yeah, with and it was one of those things where again it goes back to the, the the brilliance of telling it from the child's voice because he had no idea why his parents were laughing but i can yeah. imagine them like being so stressed out this entire time and and like you just said humiliated and having to go through all of these atrocities and the fact that she broke the rules and brought something that she was not supposed to bring and mm -hmm. i mean i can just imagine like after all the crap that they had been through that you would absolutely get a kick out of that as an adult whereas the kids because they were so used to her having her magic bag of like treats and goodies mm. they were so disappointed when she pulled that sewing machine out <laughs> instead of like candy or something else and it was so funny because you know people would try to help her carry the bag, mm -hmm. and she just nope. she would nope, she would never let that go. Mm -hmm. um, nice. She held on to it. It was such a, and he didn't even really know why she was like that about that bag until 
you know, then they find yeah. out that, oh, she has smuggled in something <laughs> to have. And then Sweet. you see her, you know, sewing and you're making, finding scraps of material and making, making a home. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Trying to put together a home on, I guess, very little. And it was actually, that was quite good as well. Like seeing the husband adapt as well, constantly, like mm -hmm. he constantly became the head yeah, you know, of, of wherever he was, like the head foreman or whatever, and you know, and he kept finding jobs to do, I guess, to keep himself busy. And he became like a point of contact for everybody to go to, and he, you know, making footpaths out of wood and things like that because where they were in one of the barracks, the, the it was a former swampland or something. So whenever it mm -hmm. rained, um, obviously it was horrible. They'd step out of their room and it probably become covered in mud, and they probably didn't have that many clothes with them anyway. Uh, so. Yeah, the fact that he kept adapting as well, the dad, and trying to, he was also trying to make it, I guess, like a home and probably like keep himself busy. He's probably yeah, I was going to say, a lot to keep in. himself busy to do, to have something to do. Otherwise, you go crazy. Oh, yeah, and, it was a, and, and the whole idea of keeping a community together mm -hmm. um, because he would, you know, he would, he would help other people move in when, yep. and he, he just was a, a leader. He was one of those born leaders in a way. But even within that, there were times when they turned on each other. Yeah. You know, when the yes. people in the camp, yeah. I mean, and that's the stresses that you see. And I mean, I think those are deliberate stresses to break down a community um, so that they don't consolidate, so that they, they can't be a united front. And um, you could see that happening uh, to them, that the, 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 um, the cracks, the fractures mm -hmm. that happened because of the stress of being in that situation. Yeah, and it got worse yeah. when they were... Uh, transferred to the camp back in California that right. was the biggest and the sort of meanest and most militarized of all the internment camps in the U.S. and and it was one of those things where of course you know in every in every box you're going to have your bad apple so there were the mm -hmm. folks that were the uh, sort of the that became radicalized and, mm -hmm. and decided you know what you, everything you're saying is true. Like, why not? If that's what you already think, then I'm going to, I'm going to actually show you that that's what we can do. Um, and I, 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 I think that that's kind of what was going on too, where it's like, you, you only need one agitator. It takes mm -hmm. one agitator to upset the balance of a, of a well-run community. So you get your agitators in there and they, it doesn't take long to kind of break down. But um, I, I just thought it was interesting that he, the that his father kind of did everything he could not necessarily to shield uh george from mm -hmm. from what was happening but he did not want him to fall under sort of the the, the spell of the radicalized folks that mm -hmm. you know were trying to overthrow the camps um but at the same time he was always honest with him and I, I think that that is something that you don't always see. Like a lot of times you see, um, you know, in, in all different types of media, when situations like this are happening, whatever view the parents have is what view they push onto their children. And it's, it's never like, well, can you explain this? And can you help me understand that? It, it, it's like the kids don't ever try to ask for understanding or try to understand the situation. They just do what they're told. And, and to a certain extent, George did what he was told, but he always asked questions. And I thought that that was a really unique perspective. And I think that that is just, I mean, that's something that's probably very unique to him, you know, like him as a person. And it kind of reminded me a lot of March in, in just how mm -hmm. inquisitive John Lewis was when he was younger 
and how he could pick up on um, sort of people that weren't leaning in the direction that he knew that he was leaning in. Um, and I think it just takes a special kind of person to kind of from, from that young of an age to be able to ask the questions, even when you disagree with the answers. At the very least, you have asked the question and you're trying to have a conversation because it does get to the point later in the book where we have a few pages where he is a teenager and he's talking to his dad over dinner and he's like, why did you do this? Like, what, you know, it's kind of the hormonal angry teenager. Like, right, you, right. you took us and uprooted us and you didn't even fight. You didn't even question. Like, you did exactly what they told you to do. Why did you do that? And um, that scene was really hard to read because it's kind of like, oh, like, mm -hmm. what choice did I have? Yeah. And, you know, his, his dad didn't say that. But... Kids safe. Yeah, he, he said he wanted to keep his kids safe. Yeah. You know? But he also defended America as well because he said, um, was it despite all we've experienced that democracy is still the best in the world um, because it's a people's democracy? You know, still what they experience is pretty undefendable, I think. Like, mm -hmm. but, like, but I think then it takes a real optimist, though, to say that. And, and that's the, the, the people that can keep the level ahead even when people are screaming at you, people are pointing guns at you. But to keep and continue to say, it, this sucks now, but it's going to work because mm -hmm. the dad, I was going to say the dad came work. across as, the dad came across as fairly upbeat throughout the entire thing really even mm -hmm. when they had to start again you know from you know we'll, we'll, we'll do this we'll do that and even mm -hmm. when you know, he was doing volunteering work you know just because he was conscious of the community but his wife you know the, the mum was like um you know we've got to look out for our own a little bit here as well because mm -hmm. you know you're doing all this stuff for free and we need money um but i thought he was he came across as actually a really good well you know a really good person in real life not just character but it, it, obviously he was written by george because obviously i imagine george probably saw him as his, uh, as most children do with their dads like as a as a hero and, uh, but it didn't have it was, to be that way because when we read mouse there were plenty of times where the author of the book talked about how annoying his father was and how much he disliked yeah, something so, yeah. you know it was just kind of like are are you are you saying that your dad was a bad person or are you saying that you think your dad is a bad person but george doesn't fall into that like yeah mm -hmm. that trope and and the way that he explains his father and the scene where eleanor roosevelt comes to that was the, that's what i was gonna bring yeah, up to yeah the campaign that was sequence. the one time which father wasn't totally honest yes he pretended to be ill yeah because yeah. he just could not face you know, yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt, when her husband had had them locked away, right. he just right. could not. And, and the whole idea that all the good things that Roosevelt did and then have this kind of horrific treatment of American citizens, you've got, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to see both of those things because they were both part of his legacy. Right. Yeah, the, the scene where uh, it sort of clicked for George where, oh, I see why you weren't there. Um, that was mm -hmm. another kind of heartbreaking scene just because, I mean, I, I can imagine feeling the same way that his dad did. Like, no, thank you. I have no interest in shaking the hand. Like, I, you know, I don't wish any animosity toward this person, but I don't have to sit here and smile in your face. Like, I'm right. definitely not doing that much. But, but, but he does go to the home. Mm -hmm. Remember, he goes as, as an adult. Yeah. He is invited to speak. And he goes. Yeah, and he doesn't hold and back either. I, I love that. He back, but he, he goes. He, he realizes that he has a story to tell and there's a reason for him to go. And to point out that these are both sides of these, 
of this legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't run away from it. You can't run away yeah. from the negative side of his legacy. And I think he specifically says like this, this country, the U.S. is one of the few countries where you can do things like this That's right. and not worry about, you know, being assassinated or any kind of ramifications that are that kind of brutal. When just earlier today we had, what was it in Belarus, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Belarusian government grounded a plane and pulled a dissident off the plane um, that was going to a, a, a completely different country. Like it, it's not the same everywhere else. Right. People can't speak out against the government. People can't tell the truth or tell their story. So um, I love, I, like you said, like him going to that house, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, growth. And I don't think he owed um, them oh, no. anything, but I think no. the fact that he went and told his truth and said that this is mm-hmm. the, this is a place where I can do that. Um, so in, in that situation, like I'm happy to be here. And I thought that that was very, very interesting. I want to go back to something that you said when you talked about asking the questions and how the similarity between him and, and John Lewis, I think that's probably an element of, of a leader mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that maybe you know, those intangibles that you can't teach in terms of leadership. Yeah. Um, that, that makes you, there's something inside of you that makes you question, um, that makes you raise questions, even if, or even if you only raise them to yourself, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you, maybe you're not in a position where you can ask someone. But I think those are the components of leadership. And that's one of the things that comes across in this book. So if no other reason, you know, people who only know him as his connection to Star Trek, Mm-hmm. Um, you could see that this was really a leader. Yeah. Um, yeah. That he had been a, a, a person with these strong leadership um, uh, tendencies. And he had gotten that, he'd watched, he'd observed that in his father. Mm-hmm. And he incorporated that into who, the man that he became. Yeah, so I think it's I think a, that's a good that's indicator powerful. of, uh, yeah, it's very powerful. And I think it's also mm-hmm. a good indicator of, um, that's how you can tell a good activist because they have like you you nailed it like it's it's an intangible thing and Mm -hmm. it's one of those things not everybody is meant to do it and that is perfectly fine uh but I when when it got to that part and he was like you know I eventually I realized like my dad because of the relationship that I had with my dad and how he always answered my questions that I pretty much have been in politics my entire life because Mm -hmm. because that's what he did um, and it's kind of one of those things where like the, you know, by the end it's come full circle and you're like, oh yeah, like, and, and now it's like, I kind of wish, you know, not to take away, cause uh, maybe like in a different story or something else, but like, I, I kind of want to know more about the relationship between him and his father. Yeah. Um, because he said his father died before the, uh, reparation, reparation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, before they came. Um, but it wasn't by much. I mean, I think he said his father died two or three years before that happened. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that has got to be just such a hard feeling to deal with because he was the one that told you from the very beginning, like the democracy is going to work. It's going to work. It mm-hmm. might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but it's going to work. Um, and then to not, not get to see it all the way through. That's, that sucks. I think the other thing that, that is a takeaway from this book is um, you're always, and, and in a democracy, um, you're always working. There's never a, a time when you can say, oh, well, we fixed that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. then we, 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 you know, we just, it, it, you're always 
there is always work to be done. That yeah, was like a great line in the book when he said yes. it's a people's democracy and mm-hmm. the people have to do the work to make the democracy work. That's right. And, and that's right. the thing that people forget. It's there, it's not a hand me out, it's not a handout, it's not a free-for-all. If you want it to work, you have to work with it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it, how it Deborah, when you um, said that just now, I remember you saying something similar, actually, when we um, talked about March, actually. Yeah. Um, I think you said something along the lines of when you're tired, it's someone else's t- time to yeah. take over yeah. and carry carry on. And and um, and actually, I was quite surprised when I read this book. Uh, right, It's towards the end when he sort of, you know, when they, you know, when they sort of, after they've left the camp and he sort of jump it and the things jumping around in time a little bit and it um as it's showing him as he's getting older and it, it reference and it shows martin luther king and i have a dream and talks about how he yeah. met martin luther king and i was like you know obviously all these people that were impacted you know from um obviously john lewis and then uh, you know all these people that are impacted and what they did with their lives and and how george has met martin luther king and he even says you know i'll, I'll never forget what he said to me and to be honest he didn't say very much to him but like um you know thanks for your contribution and and uh, you know he said it was an honor and that was about that was about really the extent of their conversation but i i just thought it was um you, you know sort of how, how to be honest racism basically is what i'm coming to like you know being over here in the uk and i do see you know i've been to america loads of times and i love america but it, it, you know for, and like you know this whole trying to you know this whole I don't, I don't know kind of laugh about trump make america great again it kind of just what what what, what was his mind thinking is it is it what returned to white racism is that what yes. where he was going because because like it, i mean like, look i love america please anyone listening to this i've got no problem with america but like just how racist like the like hundreds of years have been and and it, it, it and like you just said about how you just got to keep going it just seems to me like there's still this battle and even um and it says it in the book as well was it um i wrote it down actually page between page 200 and 201 where he references about um suddenly when the trump administration took over trump ba- instantly banning like muslims from coming into the country mm-hmm. not all muslims he banned it from all muslim countries like but i mean i'm sure he just meant muslims in general um and, and just yeah even though like almost a hundred years have gone past since since some um, agents have been locked up in the camps it's it just a hundred years have gone by and nothing seems to have been learned by or maybe they don't want to learn it well, i don't know but that's like um but how entrenched racism is in some people's even in their dna i guess and like so that when they were again when you're saying go keep going that's the thing like we've just got to keep going and that's when i guess probably the fear of last year when the whole um hashtag black lives matter and blackout day and stuff like that it's not shouldn't just be one off we've got to keep these conversations going and i think for me reading a book like this it just almost re-energizes that whole thing in my mind about we just gotta keep being aware of of racism mm-hmm. and, and call, we have to stop yeah with each other it's not it's right. like you black lives matter and stop asian hate and free palestine it's it, this is a global thing like it's it's never going to yeah. go away and you can't sit here and say well that activist group is doing things and and this activist group is not doing like no i mean everybody is is fighting for the same thing and it goes yeah. back to the civil rights when they used to say nobody is free until we're all free um yeah. so it it yeah. needs to be some sort of like solidarity kind of effort and we can't keep blaming each other we can't keep blaming the government it's just time to to get out there and and do the work that comes with it and i think that 
the you know even though it happened when he was very young um because he was born in 37 and they got put into these camps in 1942 it's one of those things where it's just kind of you you grew up your whole life like this and um because of who your father was it's almost like you didn't have a choice but to kind of fall into politics but you know that he's 84 years old now George Decay mm-hmm. and it's like this this event happened 80 years ago you got put into these camps and ever since then you know you you have come out so not only are you looked upon as a minority even though you're an american citizen um but you're also you've also come out as openly gay like Mm -hmm. everything is stacked against you you know um but you keep fighting and you keep pushing and just because the small things don't hurt you the way that they do some other people doesn't mean that those small things are okay so like saying that the fight is never over it's it's never over because there's there's always another battle there's always someone else that needs help or that needs the push or that needs protecting sometimes in some cases um and he makes the connection between the you know what happens with the muslim ban and the mm-hmm. and the, the at the borders and yep. you know he he is one of these people who you know he sees the big picture that this is not about just what happened to my family and to my group this is this is what happens when people are marginalized and oppressed. Mm -hmm. The other thing that that got to me was, you know, one of the chief proponents of Japanese internment camps was Earl Warren. He was the, he was the Supreme Court Chief Justice that struck down separate but equal, equal, just a few years later. So you can see all of these folks on the one hand, you know, they're, they're lionized about one thing, but then you find it's like this is like FDR. Yeah, just like you know, it, you, you know, these people are not, you know, one dimensional. They're not one thing, you know, for for whatever reasons, he was a proponent of them being locked away. And then years later, you know, he's the Warren Court where they're, they're striking down you know, discrimination laws. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's so interesting to see how all of these things are interconnected in so many ways. Yeah, but that also goes back to people knowing their history, like what Mark said. Yeah. Everybody knows about the Holocaust. Mark knows about the Holocaust. You learned that in school. We learned about the Holocaust over here in school, but yes. we're learning about what happened somewhere else is, is kind of what that boils down to. It's very easy for a textbook to tell you what happened in a place that half the people reading this textbook are never in their lives ever going to see for themselves. But when it comes to things that have happened here that still affect people that are here, those are much harder to get into the hands of all of the people that need to be able to see it. And it's, it, it, I, I, I just hate that sometimes it's like the country has such a short memory where this happened in 1942 and here it is 2021. We still have kids and families in cages on the border because mm-hmm. of other than racism what what other reason is there these these are people that are coming to this country for a better life seeking asylum and and we're we're caging them until hearings or until you know we're still putting people in camps and leaving them in these horrible conditions and expecting them to make a way for themselves how much of that actually has been undone though since biden took over or is it still pretty much the same much at all not not as I think they're they've been managed to reduce some of the numbers of kids, mm-hmm. but there's still an issue with um 
with with people at the border. I think they've they've managed to do some some changes, but not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you also have to understand that a lot of the people that are doing the work, they believed in those policies, and so they're going to be dragging their feet yeah. to um, even if even if someone brings puts down an order and a policy it's going to take a while to get the people out that thought that think that this was a good idea. Oh yeah. And, Plus it's your feet and doing the work. And, yeah. you know. and at this point it's too entrenched in corporate America. There's too much money. Exactly. People getting money for, yeah. yeah. So that's it, a, but it's that's a, a major issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, but the, it also, it stems from the problem of people not knowing these things. I, before we started recording, I was telling Deborah that I, I knew about the internment camps and I knew that that we had done that to the Japanese Americans. I did not know that Ronald Reagan actually <clears throat> issued checks to the 60,000 surviving um, mm-hmm. uh, people that had been affected by that. So even even I learned something uh, reading this book. Um, to be honest, the whole book for me, I learned. I'd, <laughs> literally, I didn't, I'd, I'm pretty much, I, didn't, I didn't know any of this. I was, I was, as I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I was like, you know, like when I was reading it, like, and I was suddenly like, right, okay, so Pearl, I knew, oh, sorry, I knew about Pearl Harbor, obviously, like everybody knows about mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, like, and, the, and you know, the, all the rumors that did, did Winston Churchill know or whatever, because he obviously desperate to get America into the war, because we, 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 we've been fighting it for so long on our own, like, and, um, but whether or not that bit's true, I guess no one will ever know, but um, obviously I always knew about that, but then suddenly as I'm turning the pages, and then suddenly it ripples across over to actually mainland America, and, and then seeing them suddenly go from living their normal lives to suddenly being locked up and 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 i was like oh my god i didn't know i literally didn't know any of that happened this was you know i knew about when we read march and and mouse i knew about those things like obviously it was actually the books were interesting to me to see the detail and see someone's perspective of what happened mm-hmm. but this whole thing for me was new and uh like and yeah, completely a massive learning experience but also you know, I almost too familiar with George Takahi as a, as an actor, and seeing him on Heroes and Star Trek and, and sci-fi, and I had no idea of his entire background or history, and uh, and obviously because of becoming an actor and getting that platform, it's allowed him to be able to tell these these stories and right. and, for, and for there to be an audience. So, like in a way, thankfully that he that somebody from those camps has gained a platform to allow people like me and and yourselves to know more about what happened and other people reading this will have no idea either so yeah um, I actually loved the part where he talks about going to audition for Gene Roddenberry for the yeah. first time oh yeah yeah the same uh, thing yeah, yeah and and he said he he knows how cliche it is to go back to your agent and be like oh my god I want this part I want this part I want this part um but I thought it was fast I have always been a fan of Star Trek specifically because Star Trek was one of the first TV shows I ever saw that had so much diversity and not just in the humans that were on the show, but the fact that you had alien crew members that were Mm -hmm. on equal footing with the humans. It has always been a fascinating concept to me. Um, And to see the conversation, like a a behind the scenes peek, so to speak, of the conversation that Gene had with George to say, look, I, I really want this role to be represented by someone from the Pan-Asian community because it is a very large segment of the, you know, of the world and we need to be able to reach everyone. First of all, he was, had the wherewithal to say that out loud and mean it. Um, mm-hmm. But also to say, but I don't want this to be like other Asian roles, mm-hmm. which means, he, yes, like he knew, you know, you've got the guys like, uh, 
Fu Manchu or you got the way that uh, Bruce Lee was treated uh, mm-hmm. back back in early Hollywood. And it's just like to to sit down with a wealthy white producer of the time and to have a candid conversation about race. Uh, I thought that was really kind of impactful as well to to just to go to show how progressive that series was and how ahead of its time uh, it was. Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciated that little tidbit, even though for the, you know, most of the book, I, again, I really love this retelling. I love the story. I loved, I, I loved the child's voice of living through these events, but I also really liked kind of getting to see snippets of his adult life. Yes. And one of the things that, um, that I, that struck me was I have this really strong feeling that graphic nonfiction and graphic memoir can reach an audience in ways that straight narrative cannot. Yes. Um, and I was just, I just thought this, when I used to teach young adult literature, um, one of the, the exercises was to ask students, is there a story or is there some narrative that will not work in uh, a graphic retelling or a graphic telling? And they would examine different types of stories. But I do think there is something special about a true story being told in a graphic format Mm -hmm. that gives an additional boost of power to the storytelling. And I felt that way about March Mm -hmm. um, as well. And in in a lot of ways, March was really about something that many people experienced in a visual way through documentaries through mm-hmm. newsreels, not so much with um, the Japanese internment camp story, but seeing it unfold in a graphic telling right. is really powerful. And I just think that more stories or more unknown stories would benefit from being told in a graphic, um, using the graphic format. I think that's um, probably quite a good thing to mention yeah like i, I yeah. definitely agree in terms Me of too. like there's probably books like you know that like they called us enemy that maybe people might not pick up because just oh that's a history book or that's a biography right. and and i've got to admit like i'm not overly interested in reading straight biographies mm-hmm. like it's not something that overly appeals to me <laughs> but reading a biography in this format yeah actually is more of appealing so obviously i love graphic novels mm-hmm. anyway yeah. um but but when we've been doing these essential graphic novels and we've done quite a few that have been like this you know march and and mouse and um you know those are ones that I, i've definitely enjoyed yeah. Re- I, I hate saying the word enjoy because none of them are covered nice content really right but right. but I've, I've i've enjoyed sitting down to read them and yeah. enjoy it and but but when we talk about the artwork actually like i think it's quite important to highlight actually this is so this is a straight black and white no color other than obviously the the gorgeous cover mm-hmm. um by a fairly newcomer uh called harmony becker and um we did obviously a little bit of research for <laughs> to pick this up so other than what we've seen is online she's done a, a web comic and um I, i've got it here in front of me i, I may may pronounce this wrongly but it's uh and moan and catharis and um she's anemone. got it on a anemone, anemone. sorry anemone. i'm terrible I <laughs> it's on a uh, web comic website called tapas um so there's that but honestly if you look at her instagram her instagram is just so beautiful like in terms of her artwork honestly there's just so much on there 
Um, I enjoyed the artwork in They Called Us Enemy, and I thought it, it went from, you know, extremely detailed face um, mm-hmm. facial features um, in terms of laying out the camps. It just made me feel like I really just understand where they were as characters and, you know, even things like walking in and out of the, um, uh, you know, when they, when they walked into the, the, the new uh, room that they were given and the heat and stuff like that mm, I just mm. thought everything was just really well detailed yeah. but um, she has got on her website as well that she's got her first solo graphic novel um, coming out at the end of 2021 uh, called I'm going to try and say it, you can correct me if I'm wrong Himari Himari is that Himari House um, but I'm really you know what I really want to read this like her artwork is just so beautiful that I would be really keen to, to pick up a second book by her so Mm-hmm. You know, I really, I said it before about uh, the differences in the adult facial expressions versus the kids' <laughs> facial expressions in the book. Yeah. Um, I've been reading a lot of manga lately, and this book to me had a bit of a manga touch to it because there were several panels where, like I said, the kids would be drawn and they literally have stars in their eyes and there'd be stars floating above their heads when they were really excited. Um, there was a lot of screen toning um, in similar mm-hmm. ways that it's done with manga. And I just, I, I loved the softness of it. Um, I, I feel like this, her artwork is very soft. There's all the edges are soft. All of the characters are sort of rounded. Um, there aren't any hard edges. It doesn't feel like when you open the book, it doesn't feel like uh, an in your face kind of graphic novel. It's just everything about the art in the book to me is very subtle. Um, I know what you mean about the manga, because like when yeah. she lays down the um, the sewing machine, all the little lines pointing out. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it, it has got that sort of um, it has, I, yeah, it, it that, has to, the to feel, the right, right. Hmm. Yeah. And it's very fluid because there's there's so much different. There are so many different perspectives. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at panels, and so you get a sense of the fluidity of the artwork and the fluidity of the storytelling. Um, by the way she uses perspective and the different yeah. sizes and shapes of the panel. So I think a lot of care um, went into making sure that the art um, really supported the story that was told. Right. And I think, I think it fits very well with being told from a child's perspective because mm-hmm. children aren't necessarily looking at the world with the same kind of hard edges that adults are looking at the world in. So um I, I absolutely loved reading this book. I mean, there, there were definitely parts where uh, I teared up. There were parts that I learned something new, um, but there were definitely parts that actually made me laugh out loud, like the Sakana, Sakana Beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did like the, the sort of the fun, fun moments of the book, mm, you know, yeah. like the Sakana Beach. And although I guess it was probably like, it was just teaser between kids. Yeah. I was, a, li- I was yeah. a little bit anxious about where it was going. I was like, oh no, like, I was like, yeah. what's going to happen to them? Like, I thought, I know he's alive in the future because obviously, you know, he's an adult, but I was like, oh, what's going to happen? Like, I was, you know, I was getting anxious, but I did enjoy the sort of that, that sort of banter and stuff like that. And, um, there you was, know, for, what, oh, what, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, just obviously, we, we should probably start bringing this to a close, but I was going to ask you both, like, just what your takeaways are from, from this book. That, Deborah, uh, do you want to go first? Can't forget history. That's my biggest takeaway from this. Well, someone said the history doesn't um, repeat itself, but it rhymes and it echoes. <laughs> yes. And I think that, you know, we see that currently. I think that was one takeaway. I, I just spoke about the whole idea of this format, how well it, it can tell a historical story. 
um, was another takeaway that I had. And I just had a renewed um, sense of respect for him, um, just knowing all of this detail about his story and his father and the, the leadership. Um, you know, you just, you think you're just being a parent, you know, you're doing the best you can, but his father had such ability to create an atmosphere of growth and an atmosphere of, of um, you know, understanding that this was a very awful thing that happened to them, but never allowed it to embitter him. Right. Um, and so, because, you know, you know, bitter when you when you're bitter you're basically poisoning yourself yeah. and the yeah. other person is going on about their business but so he he instinctively passed that type of attitude on to George and uh, so I thought that was those are the things that really struck me about the book I think for me it's just learning uh, there's so much I learn about this book and I know we're doing a podcast where other people are going to listen and learn as well but there are other social circles social circles that I'm in work and friends and family that may not necessarily listen to the podcast or read this this book I'm I want to tell more people about it really and it kind of even makes me think you know schooling just I mean I'm not going to have to change the schooling system but like just to highlight things like this should be should be included you know and more people should read this and understand what happened so that's for me I just I'm going to try and make sure I can at least make sure one other person reads this who you know outside of my normal social circles basically <laughs> that's so, awesome um, that is great I did have one question though uh so the Asian citizenship back in the 1800s it was the Chinese exclusion Asian. act Chinese right. exclusion act. Uh-huh. Yeah, where uh, Chinese cannot become citizens. That was back in 1882. And finally, in 1952 was the time when the government finally revoked that. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I, I always, whenever I see stuff like that, I think about, so my dad's not from here. He's from Somalia. And uh, my dad became a naturalized citizen in, I was in high school. And I remember distinctly, he pulled me out of school for the day. We had like this big family thing. We went to the ceremony and it was, it, he was so, he was just like on cloud nine for days, days after his naturalization mm-hmm. ceremony. And I just, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to serve in the military for a country that didn't even consider you a citizen of that country. I just think we're still that, doing that. I mean, we're, we're still, oh, yeah. we're still, we're still letting people who are, who are quote unquote undocumented um, serve in the military. And if something happens, they get deported. So, I mean, this is still going on this part, this, this aspect, I mean, the, the whole idea of um, just exploiting people who um just really just want an opportunity is, right. is something that is continuing to exist. And, um, you know, I, whenever I've, I've watched ceremonies on TV of people becoming naturalized citizens, it just gives me goosebumps because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see the excitement in, in their, on their eyes. Um, and most, many of us who, who were, who have long lineages of, of family who've lived in this country, especially if you're African-American, we have, family members who fought in World War II and came home and could not, and it was still Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, this is something that is permeates so many different communities in this country. And, um, you know, I think that is something that all goes back to what we said earlier. There's always the work. 
to do to, to make that better, to make um, what President Obama used to say for a more perfect union. Um, that's always what you have to. And I, and I know people get tired. You know, I think that there is a that's tendency. Hard work. It's hard work and you feel like, didn't we, I thought we, I did do, you ever seen the, 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 um, the woman, she was protesting, um, the, uh, trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. And she said, get a big sign that said, I thought we fixed this shit 15 years ago. You know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. you know? and I think that that is the frustration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, people who want to exclude people never get tired. And so you, you can't get tired as much as you are tired. You just have to keep <laughs> doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's yeah, just have to keep going and keep the conversation going. And um, but no, it's been good. I, I've enjoyed speaking about this book and um, like you know, just enjoyed reading it. And I kind of it's left me kind of wanting to know more. So mm-hmm. just thanks, Deborah, for coming on and joining us again for something. Um, Loved it. It's almost sim- similar theme to last time that you were on. <laughs> we'll find you something easier going for next time. <laughs> like, We'll, we'll pick a Batman book or something like that. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that might be more of a challenge for me because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a history buff. So that oh, no. felt like fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Deborah, like obviously for people listening, where, where um, uh, obviously where can they find you online? But also have you got anything coming up um, that people would like to check out as well? Well, um, I'm still very much involved with our, with, as I said earlier, we're still doing our um, Black Cauldron, which is a Harry Potter podcast. So I'm still involved with that. I'm on Twitter um, at Shackle52. So if anybody wants to connect, that's one of the places that they can find me. And um, that's pretty much all I do these days. <laughs> and come on our podcast we'll yes, get you back and we appreciate it every time and happy to do it and happy yeah. to do it you yeah. know i honestly think i i am not a fan of nonfiction, but i much prefer reading nonfiction in this graphic format than in novel format so mm-hmm. if this is the only way that i can get nonfiction material into my brain then i might i might have to just continue doing nonfiction graphic yeah. novels I think I think it's a great way to to get engage young people, and I think they, this would be a great book of discussion. Yeah, because uh, well, I think the younger right. audience or younger generations that we're just more visual. So exactly. it's uh, now I have no problem reading novels, but like the novels that I read, they're like sci-fi or fantasy or even romance novels. You breeze right through those, no problem. But exactly. to take in all of the material that comes with a topic like this, it's hard to keep it all straight if you don't have the visual component to go with it. Um, so I do, I do think that this is a fantastic medium for that kind of thing. And I, um, I hope more people will avail of it. Hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, as of right now, we are taking the month of June off. We do not have a graphic novel. Just just for the the book club though. Yeah. For the book club. Um, so once we decide what we're covering for July, we will be sure to let you know, but we are not done with our late to the party episodes just yet. We're just taking a small little break. Yeah. So the weekly episodes will carry on. And if you stay tuned to the weekly episodes, we will let you know what we're carrying in. So what we will be reviewing in July. Um, but you can also follow us on social media as well and stay tuned there. We are Geeks on Niche on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Podbean, Apple, Spotify, tune in we are everywhere so be sure to give us a five-star review and tell your geeky friends thank you very much cheers guys bye